The actions of the junior senator from Wisconsin have caused alarm and dismay amongst our allies abroad and given considerable comfort to our enemies. And whose fault is that? Not really his. He didn't create this situation of fear. He merely exploited it, and rather successfully. Cassius was right. The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Good night, and good luck. Critical Frequency, this is B. Beeman, and you're listening to Peace of Mind. I'm a singer-songwriter and producer, I'm a dad, and I'm an American. Peace of Mind is an experiment. It's my new album, but I'm releasing it as a podcast. Today's episode is called With Love from Russia, and if you couldn't guess, the theme is Russia. Our guests are Active Measures director Jack Bryan, co-host of the podcast Muller She Wrote, Jaleesa Johnson, and investigative journalist and frontline producer Neil Doherty. So my fascination with Trump and Russia really started in the summer of 2016. Little things were popping up like Mike Flynn and Paul Manafort and WikiLeaks. I don't know, my spidey sense was just tingling. Part of the reason my antenna was up was because in 2015, I watched a breathtaking documentary on Frontline called Putin's Way. It's about Vladimir Putin's rise within Russia to the highest office in the land. The writer, producer, and director behind that film is my first guest, Neil Doherty. When Putin came back from being a spy in in Germany to Russia, which was in some disarray, and he becomes deputy mayor of St. Petersburg, and he puts together a triumvirate of ex-KGB politicians and gangsters, because that was a power vacuum. Once the government fell or Mm -hmm. lost its influence, the two main power sources were the KGB and the gangsters. And so Putin puts together that triumvirate and runs the city. And he takes that group, including the same very personnel in many cases, to the Kremlin and essentially establishes the same Mm -hmm. uh, political and economic structure, where essentially you're paying fealty to the boss, Mm -hmm. and nothing can run in the country without the boss being paid and getting his piece of it. And that's where we are, I think. It is a completely kleptocratic state. And for the West, and America in particular, to be uh, supplicating itself before Putin is a terribly sad sight. You mean in this past few years, the Trump era? Yeah, yeah, under President Trump, it is a terrible sight because you are saying, I'm okay with a country that's run by a gangster. Yeah. Where they killed journalists, uh, they mm-hmm. brook no opposition, they steal money. All of the main industries were stolen by the oligarchs, and then a portion of that money gets funneled to Putin. This isn't me just saying that the CIA has estimated he's worth $6 billion at the time of making that film. He didn't get that on his government salary. So you're looking mm-hmm. at a country that has no free press, and journalists routinely are murdered. Routinely. Opposition leaders are routinely beaten or jailed or murdered. And... The economy is harnessed for the benefit and at the behest of a small clique around Mm -hmm. the president. 
for his benefit. It's a terrible message to be saying, this is a leader I admire, or I'm even prepared to meet and, and do supplication before. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's just a dreadful and terrible sight. Uh, the meeting in Helsinki was a sight to behold. Trump looked like a yeah. dog who had, had his nose smacked with a newspaper. Um, completely, completely. It was ridiculous. It was very sad and very alarming. I remember when we end Putin's way, it ends with his biographer telling the story of him in his apartments as a young boy and cornering the rat and it jumping and essentially giving him a flight. And he learns never to corner a rat. And she says, now that he's cornered, because sanctions had been imposed because of the Ukraine invasion by most of the Western countries, she said, now that he's been cornered, he won't retreat, he'll jump. Those are the mm -hmm. last words in the film. And what happens after that is he goes into Syria, helps create mass migration into Europe, astonishingly, I mean, creates a huge crisis. And of course, also gets involved in the US election and, and yeah. hacks into the Democratic National Party. So those are the two things that happened post that film. And it was him jumping, and he did it to great effect, and has actually yeah. transformed his whole position on the board, where he is much stronger than he was at the beginning. And you have to think, this is a country with the same GDP as Spain. This is not a superpower anymore. This is a kleptocratic state with the same GDP as Spain. Yeah. And there we are, doffing our cap to it. It's interesting you bring up Syria because um, historically Russia has a port on the Mediterranean, I believe, in Syria mm -hmm. that they've mm -hmm. been able to use. And so they have this relationship to maintain. But I've always thought that what better way to destabilize Europe than to create this situation? And you're kind of saying that. Do you believe that it was a, a chess move? Yeah, uh, yes, no, it's my personal opinion on that. But I believe it was a master stroke and a calculated stroke. Yeah, entirely. Yeah. And it was designed to get him out of his predicament mm -hmm. that he was in. And the thing about Putin that's so telling about that quote about he'll jump, he doesn't retreat. You know, he only knows uh, one way, and that's to attack. And all he's doing is finding the best way to attack. And he's been trained to look for people's weaknesses. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's what the KGB do. And he certainly, I think, found them in Europe. And look at the state of Europe now as a result of that migration of millions of people. Mm -hmm. You know, everywhere is in complete disarray, really. France and Germany are hanging on. Britain is doing its little England thing of, you know, um, trying to get out of the EEC. Italy's become populist. Hungary, Poland. You bring up in the film how, how beholden to Russian money London is. And... Uh... It's not an easy thing to extricate yourself from. No, and I don't think they would have. I mean, they didn't until he takes the next step and attempts to murder the former spy, Skripal in Salisbury. Yeah. And um, until that, Britain was still prepared to just take the money. It took them coming into Britain and killing people for that to change. Killing uh, not just ex-Russians, but actual British people. Yeah, I think Putin is a destabilizing influence on the world and one that is gaining prominence. Because the other thing that uh, someone told me in that film, an author called Ben Judah, who's written a very good book on this, but is 
Putin doesn't believe in any rules. He didn't believe in a rule-based international order. He said Putin believes in black money. But actually the WTO and the EEC and everyone else can have their rules. But he believes the world runs on bribery. And that there are trillions of dollars of black money running around and billions of them belong to the Russians. Mm. And that they'll bribe anyone they need to get in and to achieve their aims. And that's just the way they work. It's just their modus operandi. And I think it's taken the West a long time to fully realize what they're up to, as it did about asymmetrical warfare, that you're not going to win necessarily with tanks. What you do is you soften up the ground culturally mm-hmm. and you um, create chaos and division in your opponent's arena before you attack. And perhaps you don't even have to attack because you may get fifth columnists within the country to do your work for you. And that's being played out in Ukraine. It's being prepared for the Baltics and it's probably being played out in Hungary as we speak. And it involves actually paying spokespeople to come out and spew the Russian line if necessary. And there are people who do that on the BBC all the time, and there are people, I'm sure, who do it in Hungary all the time, and quite possibly in America all the time. And they're they're actually paid to do it. I mean, Sebastian Gorka is on TV all the time here, and he's Viktor Orban's kind of right-hand guy in Hungary, and he's in Putin's pocket. And you know, Manafort was being paid a lot of money to keep the Ukrainian puppet in place. So... (laughs) Uh, it's unreal. So this is just the, the way of the world. But the point is, these methods are actually in, I'm told, the Soviet military manual. Oh. So this is actually a deliberate and calculated attack when this happens. And so far, we've not been able to stop it. As it was a deliberate and calculated attack to get involved in the U.S. election. And I think it needs to be seen in that light. You were saying softening the ground before making your moves and the Syrian refugee crisis playing out in Europe is softening the ground. It's some of these little inklings of Russian connections to Donald Trump were happening in the summer of 2016. Was your radar up? Were you paying attention to it at all? Yeah, I was actually, and I was meant to go and make another film about it, but I was already engaged in a film and I couldn't free myself. So I was paying close attention to it. And actually the film I wanted to do was what was he up to in Europe? And it was about the asymmetrical warfare. It was about how he would pay people to cause dissent, uh, organize groups who could be useful in that. So one scenario, for example, was presented to me by a person in the know in Britain is when there was always a fear of, say, an invasion of Latvia or Estonia. And the scenario that the military see is there's a soccer game between Russia and, say, Latvia, in which a group of Russians get out of hand and create some damage or beat someone up and get jailed. And so they get arrested and put in prison. And then suddenly there becomes a great uh, movement to free the oppressed Russians who are in the jail. Mm. And suddenly little green men appear, as they did in Ukraine, who are Russian nationalists out to stop the oppression of these poor soccer supporters. And then you go from there into it. But before that would happen, you would have created groups 
about the oppression of Russian minorities or in some cases majorities in these countries. And you'd have had spokespeople speak on television about it and so on. So you've prepared ground for that. Then you create an incident and then you make your move. And that is, I think, the game plan. At the moment, I think it's let's just create enough chaos because then they can't come at us. Um, and of course, he also has Europe dependent on his gas. And Gazprom is just an arm of the Russian state run by Putin's friends from St. Petersburg when he first put together his government plan. So it's a very, very dangerous situation because, uh, I mean, they actually promote fascist groups and so on. They actually plough money into them, I'm quite sure, all over Europe. And we now know that even with the Brexit campaign, one of the leading funders is connected to Russian money. So these things happen. I mean, it is asymmetrical warfare. It's in the military manual and they are deploying it. And we should wake up. In America as well. Yeah. Uh, during 2016, they would, I mean, maybe not with tons of money, but with resources on the internet and also creating rallies like for Black Lives Matter and then pit them against some racist group, whatever it is, um, and just inflame situations. Anything that will cause division, I think that's it. I think it's been taken to a whole other level by President Trump. I mean, I think, you know, some of the things he has said about the press are just terrible. And this continuing on about fake news is dangerous. And he's inviting violence against journalists, I think. Take it from America. It, it is possible. It can be fanned into flames. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I've been thinking about like the correlation between having a free press and having a thriving, healthy democracy. And uh, a friend of mine is from Eritrea and was a news reporter there. And she's a journalist here in Washington, D.C. now. And she wrote an article about the history of Eritrea in the past 10 years or so. And she was writing about how as free press was curbed and even stomped upon, democracy went with it. Um, And I think there is a really tight relationship there. And I was wondering if you have any thoughts on that. America is quite exercised at the moment with people opposing the Republican agenda. And the press, I think, has largely stood up and I think acquitted itself well. The courts have stood up. But you're right, I don't think we can be at all complacent about it. If this is a test, we have to make sure we meet it mm-hmm. and that democracy prevails. The alternative is not pleasant at all. No. And is there to be seen. Like, it's not hiding. You can find it anywhere you travel now. You can find corruption and autocracy uh, widely available in countries near you. Yeah, which is so striking to hear anybody, Trump or any, any apologist, talk about Russia like, oh, what, we're so great? Like, we're so much better than them? Or what? I was like, yeah, we are. <laughs> In yeah. some very, very important ways. Yeah, absolutely. There's no democracy in in Russia. It's completely bereft of it. Well, that's a magician's trick he's done to make it seem yeah. it is a democracy. And I think that's the one thing you have to understand about Putin and why he's now been in power for however long it is, 20 years or something, 20. and can be in power again by all kinds of maneuvering, swapping with his prime minister and coming back yeah. as president after his terms are up. But what I think I understood about that was he can't lose power because if he does, his great fear, like any autocrat, 
Is it someone coming in? And it could even be another autocrat. But they'll jail them and possibly hang them for crimes mm -hmm. committed. Any democratic government would certainly jail them. Any autocrat might decide he was a good diversion to, and there's loads of material on this guy, right? So he knows he cannot lose power. Yeah. And that's a dangerous position to be in. And Machiavelli says, the one thing you should never do for your enemy is corner them like that rat. Because if there's no way out, the only thing they can do is attack and fight to the death. And that's Putin. He will not give in. He has three doors, death, jail, or continue yeah. thriving. And it is said that when the Arab Spring happened, mm -hmm. it was a lesson not lost on Putin that he paid close attention to Gaddafi's demise. So I think this is a real fear that he lives with. It was beautifully laid out in the film. Mm -hmm. All right. I do have one more question for you. Just a kind of a, a softball, if you will. <laughs> if safety or resources were not an issue, is there a particular story you're dying to tell or you'd like to tell? Oh, I think the story I'd like to tell would be what does Putin have on Donald Trump? Mm -hmm. I think that's a big story of our time. Neil is an award-winning news journalist and filmmaker. Check out his work on pbs.org slash frontline and in our episode notes. Our next guest picked up where Putin's way left off. Like me, filmmaker Jack Bryan became obsessed with Trump's ties to Russia in the summer of 2016. And by 2017, he had begun production on his film Active Measures, which examines allegations of collusion between the Trump campaign and agents of the Russian state. What I learned from the film is that this was 30 years in the making. So we really started the film in 1984. The first, what it seems like clearly illegal transaction that Donald Trump is associated with, which is to sell five condominiums personally. He met with the guy personally uh, to a Russian mobster named David Bogadan. State attorney general ruled that transaction was money laundering, clearly illegal, clearly dealing with the Russian mafia. But that's a casual sort of association. Doesn't mean that that was part of their base business model, even though Trump Tower was only the second building in New York where shell companies could purchase condos. So it was like a perfect money laundering vehicle, and that wasn't an accident. That was a Roy Cohn move. Let's hold up for a second. In the 1950s, Roy Cohn was a lawyer who worked for Joseph McCarthy. The American people know that one of those parties will be destroyed. Communism is made a McCarthy was a fascist of the worst type. Uh, I saw the first stages of a fascist revolution in this country. Cohen became a top political fixer and eventually Donald Trump's mentor and personal lawyer. Now back to Jack. And, you know, Trump Towers and Trump uh, casinos kind of become Russian hangouts like for the Russian mob. A lot of Russian mobsters buy those condos. But again, it's not institutionally part of the Trump organization until starting in the 90s to 2004, he goes through a series of business and personal bankruptcies at the end of which he cannot get money. He cannot get bank loans. He cannot get seed capital. And the Russian mob goes, ooh, here's a guy who, if a lot of money starts flushing into him, no one's going to question it because he's very famous and he's created a brand for being rich. Mm -hmm. But he can't actually get capital. He needs us. And he needs to maintain that brand. So they made their move. And really by the end of 2004, that's when it really kind of all comes together. They've signed deals. And the Trump Soho, the Sunny Isles development, 
the Fort Lauderdale, you know, Toronto Tower, all these projects made with sketchy Russian money begin development then. Yeah. It's one in Panama? Is oh, Panama, yeah, right. Azerbaijan. And those are only the ones we know about. And really, the reason we know that these ones are sketchy, it, it isn't because of the shell companies, it's because of the open transactions that we can see. So like, if you look at the Sunny Isle developments, okay, so two-thirds of those sales of those properties are to shell companies. Of the third that we can see, a third of those have been sold to Russians, which is a ridiculously high amount just in the non-shell companies. And there's also the angle of the high school yearbook buddies, uh, Michael Cohen and Felix Sater. Yeah, which is yeah. I mean, Michael Cohen point. was working with very sketchy Russian-Ukrainian forces before he was working with the Trump organization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he was friends with Felix Sater, exactly, from his teen days. His uncle owned a banquet hall in Brighton Beach that was a Russian mob hangout, and he worked there. Mm. Michael Cohen worked for a lawyer who almost certainly was just doing... Um, Insurance scams, which are Russian mob favorite scam, mm. <laughs> uh, along with gas schemes and what's the other one they like to do? Taxi medallions. Uh, taxi medallions. I don't know. I'm just no tax. No. It is. Yes. Liter- okay. The two oh. most Russian mobbed out industries are like international gas trade and like tax medallions is very high up there. <laughs> I personally feel a bit frustrated with short sightedness on the part of the left. Not even thinking about any measures being taken against the left. And so anytime there's any disruption on the left, whether it's infighting on the left, I'm very suspicious of what it is. And you can draw that to Bernie and Jill Stein and Hillary. Yeah, I think you and I look at this very similarly. I am terrified about the operation on the left. I want left-wing representatives representing their constituents. I don't want them feeling like they have to kowtow to a foreign nation that doesn't have our interests in mind, has the opposite of our interests in mind. And yeah, it really frightens me. I don't want us to get to this place on the left where they are on the right right now where they just put blinders on it. This is corruption. First and foremost, it's about national security, but it's also about corruption. And that's what we're talking about. Vladimir Putin is a more corrupting force on American politics than the Koch brothers. And if we let that into the Democratic Party, if we let that into liberal organizations, and by the way, we already have, they're in there. They're not going to do service to those organizations. Like, they don't give money to Black Lives Matter because they want Black Lives Matter to do well. They do it because they want to push it to the extreme and so that nobody's going to listen to what they have to say. And Russian influence in organizations and politics is never in order to support those groups. It is always in order to turn those groups against causes that they support. This reminds me of something comedian and co-host of the podcast Muller, she wrote, Jaleesa Johnson, told me. We were talking about this very thing, and she shared this little nugget. I I have an example, and it's so funny you bring it up. I used to actually protest with the Occupy Wall Street movement, being at all the meetings and general assemblies every week, camping out with them. I remember everything was pretty much, you know, going afloat, I guess. And then this guy shows up, and he starts offering shelter. Like, hey, if you're sleeping in a tent, you can come stay at my house. And, you know, half of the people were like, we're protesting. The other half were homeless. And they were like, actually, yeah, I'll go home with you. And so this guy takes in these people and starts kind of showering them with just hospitality, you know, which is not not weird itself. Actually, I thought it was really cool at first. But then he starts telling them his political agenda. And he tells them that he's a Tea Party person and he was looking to use some people to speak on the behalf of the Occupy movement to, to get them to speak out against it. And I was just like, this is weird, right? Like, I know that's probably happened in more interesting ways, but that was my firsthand take where I'm like, 
you know, we're doing this thing. We're trying so hard to be the 99%. And this guy's admitting that he's the 1%. And he's like, can I grab a few homeless people and take you to my mansion and, and use you on camera for something? And they went. And I was like, damn, like mm. being poor is, ooh. <laughs> That's how they get you, man. Now back to my conversation with Jack. And I think that if we want effective organizations, we all have to be pushing in the same direction and they want to cause chaos and infighting. So I am personally more concerned about the operation on the left than on the right just because that's my thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I feel like the job is kind of done on the right. Yeah, I think that's unfortunately the case. I think, I think it's been a slow roll for a long time. I mean, Jack Abramoff was getting money to Tom DeLay, Russian money. Like, it's been going on for a long time, and I think it was a slow creep. And even seeing Ron Paul run over to fucking Russia, what was that about? Yeah, I could throw Ron Paul <laughs> a lot farther than I could trust him because he's a little guy. But, yeah, I think he's very problematic. And, and, and also, just to mix it up, I think Tulsi Gabbard's opinions on Syria are very bizarre and fall very in line with the Kremlin. I do want to talk to you about that because when I talked to Neil Doherty, who did the Putin's Way documentary, we were talking about asymmetrical warfare and in softening the ground to do something else. And the ground in America has been softened in a lot of ways. You can see that. Um, but what it led to was him talking about Syria a bit. And he basically said he believed that Putin did a masterstroke by bombing the shit out of Syria and driving immigrants out of Syria into Europe, creating chaos, basically that asymmetrical warfare, Absolutely. softening the ground. Absolutely. And... Um, and Syria has a strategic importance to Russia. When you tell people like, oh, by the way, you realize there wouldn't be a migration crisis in Europe if it weren't for Putin. People don't do that math on their own. It's always like, oh, yeah, I guess that's correct. Mm -hmm. But I, the fact that people don't understand that the entire reason that we have a migration crisis is because Putin is propping up Assad. And Putin benefits from that migration crisis because now it's causing this crazy right wing turn all over Europe. And he can push Marine Le Pen and all this stuff, and yeah. it works. Yeah, and it works. And, he and softened the ground, and then he's working exactly. it. Yeah. And it's 100% correct, and it is frightening and frustrating. Listen, it takes years to build a building, and you can knock it down in a minute. Mm -hmm. And if your whole purpose is just to cause chaos, it's actually not that hard. Mm -hmm. And that ground softening, if you're 100% right, and it frightens me because also we're now kind of used to the idea that Russia is going to screw with our internal systems. To your point, like we've now kind of baked that somewhat into the cake. Mm -hmm. How do you see us healing? I wish I had a less dark opinion on this. I had a more optimistic opinion. For me, it's a little bit like thinking like, how do we heal this gangrenous wound? So like you're going to have to do more damage first. Mm -hmm. And I think that we're at that phase of yeah. there's no good out here. If we have to put a president of the United States in prison, that's not good for anybody. No. And we can't look at that with celebratory eyes. Like, I love American history. America is my home. I don't always agree with its choices, but man, do I love it. And that's going to be a sad day. But the alternative of being like, well, we don't do anything about this, I think is then you have every election cycle, China, India, Pakistan, they're not going to be able to afford to not be involved in our election. It's cheap. It's cheap. Yeah. It's cheap. And if you can buy your own candidate for $500 million, all right, well, Koch brothers aren't going to outspend me on that. And so I think that we have to deal with this. We have to inoculate this wound to democracy. Like I've always kind of written political songs and, and 
not always protest music, but that's a label that gets put on it. And I always used my free speech, but looked at what was wrong with America. And I kind of equated to critiquing my dad or knowing my dad's fault and I'll complain to him about it. But if somebody else yeah. tells my dad he's doing the same things, I'm like, fuck you. Like, that's my dad. I love that analogy, but also like, how do I want to be different? You know what mm-hmm. I mean? I'm a liberal and I will complain about the left forever. I think that, you know, we like as liberals pointing out what doesn't work. We like being like this system needs improvement because of this, this and this. But I think that that's almost a little too easy that we have to do that next step of, okay, well, how are we going to actually do a thing that doesn't minimize people's value, that doesn't disregard people? And I think that so long as we can remain solution based and always have that focused, I think that, you know, we can have a proud, wonderful future. I think it's possible. I think we have a lot of hard work to do that we wouldn't have otherwise had to do. But if we use this as an opportunity to fix our democracy, then three years from now, it could have been worth it. And it's still possible to be in that space, but we're, we're losing ground in time. Yeah, I've never felt more patriotic in my life, and I'm sure you feel maybe a similar Absolutely. way, uh, where I previously, it was love it or leave it and made me feel not patriotic in some way. But really, it was... I care, I guess, is why I write these songs, why you make this film. You care about this country and you realize how special the country is. I think that the good news is is that the presidency destroys every one of its inhabitants. You know, it's very hard to find a president who doesn't leave office in tragedy, doesn't leave office countering the thing that they went there to do. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that Obama almost got away with it, but then... Trump became the guy that America picked after him. That is a devastating statement about his legacy. Yeah. America picked the exact opposite personality that would counteract both the dignity and everything that he brought to that office. Um, and I think that in the end of the day, the presidency will also be a tragedy for Donald Trump because America is so dynamic that you cannot push in one direction without the tides pulling you apart. Mm-hmm. So true. Be sure to check out Active Measures on Hulu, Amazon, or iTunes, and find out more on ActiveMeasures.com. I'll be dissecting the song With Love from Russia in just a second, but I wanted to tell you about another great podcast I think you'll enjoy. The 45th Podcast is a weekly dissection of policy and spectacle with guests and perspectives from across the political spectrum. The 24-hour news cycle may have already moved on, but the 45th is examining developments from the White House that deserve a second look. New episodes air every Wednesday morning. In August of 2016, I was approached about contributing a song for an album curated by author Dave Eggers, a frequent guest on this program. You wrote one of the great contemporary political songs about Trump and Russia. It was basically 30 songs to protest Donald Trump. And I immediately started working on something and pulling together different ideas. There's a really famous James Bond movie called From Russia With Love. From Russia with love. You know, prior to that, sitting in a room by myself, writing and thinking about Donald J. Trump more than absolutely necessary was not appealing to me. But when this opportunity came up, there was a purpose. You know, there's a lot of things you can talk about with Trump. His bird's nest hair, his pockmarked orange skin. He's fat. He's bald. You're bald! And at that point in August 2016, the Russia stuff 
was kind of out of focus to most of the public. But my Spidey sense was tingling off the charts, and there was something very off about him. And I thought the Russia thing was sinister enough at that point because there was too many connections, and he just surrounded himself with all these weird, mobbed-up people. One of my favorite folk songs of all time is a song called Pastures Plenty," and it was originally written by Woody Guthrie. My four feet has traveled a hot, dusty road. But the version I like is the one by Odetta. And if you listen closely, you'll hear that heavy influence from Odetta. This is an FM synth bass. And I loved how it felt like you were driving across some Mad Max futuristic wasteland. A friend of mine gave me an Ebo. The Ebo is like a handheld electromagnetic toy. I'll just call it that. But you hold it over the electric guitar strings and it starts to vibrate and kind of mimic the sound of a violin bow. And something that came as a happy surprise during the recording process was that when this thing is low on batteries and when the batteries die, it creates this crazy sound. Like a degaussing machine or something. And it fit perfectly with this Trump rusher thing. This sound kind of harkens back to, you know, the more analog equipment they might have been using kind of around season three of The Americans. I'm Agent Beeman with the Federal Bureau of Investigation. I'll make this fast in case your people are watching you. This is another song, along with Brother Can You Spare Some Peace of Mind, where I do skits and voices. And this time it's uh, some Russian spy trying to reach Donald Trump. But Trump is such a narcissist that he's gone off script. And I've been practicing this Russian accent for a while now because my wife and I's former landlady, Luba, was Russian. Luba like rubles. So I've been practicing Luba for years now. Probably all just sounds like Borat from Kazakhstan. Nonetheless, it's incredibly accurate. And one of my favorite lines in this song is this Monopoly line I have. Donald Trump's the real estate king. As the president, you concede power to whoever you want. So I think the Baltic states, uh, Latvia, etc., are in danger during this presidency. And Baltic Avenue is one of the spots on Monopoly. Just a little joke there. A Siberian candidate. What you got to lose? And the drums were hitting really hard. And I found this archival recording of these men on a chain gang. And I sampled these hammers. But this marked a new chapter for me because I had never produced anything in this way before. I was on a time crunch and everything was in the box, which just means inside my computer. It was all done in a spare bedroom in Redwood City. Everything was DI'd, everything was electronic, 
and it was it was very freeing for sure. I was initially inspired by one of my favorite folk artists, Odetta, playing the folk instrument of her time. And in the end, I was inspired by the new folk instrument of our time, the laptop. And now, here's the full song, with love from Russia. Be sure to come back next week. We're talking about lawyers, guns, and money. Peace of Mind is produced and distributed by Critical Frequency, one of the few women-owned and operated networks. If you want to support them, consider joining Critical Frequency Premium, where you can get access to ad-free and bonus content for shows like Drilled, Peace of Mind, and a bunch of others. Check it out at criticalfrequency.org join. I'll be performing in D.C. on April 18th, New York on April 19th, and Boston April 20th. 
Tickets are available on peaceofmindpod.com. And don't forget, all music from the show is available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Amazon. To pre-order vinyl and get access to bonus content and other cool stuff, join me on Patreon at patreon.com slash beeman. That's patreon.com slash B-H-I-M-A-N. This episode was written and produced by Katie Ross, Amy Westervelt, and me, B. Beeman. All music for the show was written and performed by me, and you can find it on Spotify, Apple, and Amazon. This episode was mixed by Elliot Peltzman and me. Additional editing from Finn Matthews. For extra content and upcoming tour dates, go to peaceofmindpod.com. And please support us by leaving us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And join us next week for some peace of mind.